feel free to speak openly. Uh, we have uh, a, a historic event here. We have all the chancellors of Texas public university systems together on one stage. Uh, from my left to my right, we have uh, Francisco Cigueroa from the University of Texas system, Chancellor Kent Hance from the Texas Tech University system, Brian McCall of the Texas State University system, John Sharp of the Texas A&M University system, Renu Couture of the University of Houston system. You have to do that every time you hear her name. <laughs> and uh, Lee Jackson of the University of North Texas system. Thanks to you, everyone. Applause. How often do you guys get together like this? Every Tuesday? Every day. Yeah. <laughs> every two years, at least once, before every legislative session. Yeah. Well, hopefully this will be a little bit dissimilar to that experience. I hope so. Uh, we all have about 60 minutes. Uh, 45 of that will be me and the chancellors, or the chancellors and however you say that, talking. And then we'll do a Q&A with you guys. Uh, please stick to cues and not oh, statements yeah. when you get up to the mic. Uh, if you are going to be tweeting, the hashtag is TribuneFest, if you don't know that already. Um, all right, ready to go? Uh, I thought we would start out with, uh, to sort of introduce the concept of the system, and since I sort of skimped on your bios, uh, uh, the concept of the university system, which is this collection of universities that you guys oversee as chancellors, really grew out of California. But in California, uh, the universities are organized in a sort of very coherent way. The University of California system is sort of what we think of as the tier one universities, the California state, then there's the California state university system. Uh, here in Texas, there's a little bit more of a hodgepodge, all sorts of organizations in all sorts of systems. I was wondering if you could each go down the line and just sort of briefly, since there are so many of you, uh, explain, you know, what is the identity of your university system that you represent? And maybe Chancellor Cigarro, we could start with you. and six health science centers uh, from uh, and, and, and very diverse campuses, it is important to have a system uh, that allows to be able to have a, a common voice, uh, especially before uh, a legislative appropriations process to see what are common themes that will enhance higher education, not only within our system, but across our other wonderful systems in the state of Texas. Uh, I think a system also has an opportunity to be able to uh, utilize the purchasing power of 15 combined campuses. Uh, and, and we've been able to see that on multiple fronts, both in our health campuses and our academic campuses, through shared services where one could really, uh, through the purchasing power of the system, have significant cost savings. And every dollar saved is a dollar that can be reinvested back into the mission you know, of our universities and our students and our faculty. Uh, the third aspect is, uh, when one has a system like uh, the University of Texas system, you know, one can really provide a very strategic use of funds. For example, the STARS funding that the board allocates uh, to be able to utilize, to be able to recruit the very best faculty from around the world. And one of those recent recruits was Bruce Portner, which ended up becoming a Nobel laureate in the state of Texas. So I think the system has an opportunity to identify opportunities uh, that can enhance education across our great state, and at the same time, uh, be able to utilize the best minds of our campuses uh, to be able to overcome challenges. Chancellor Hans? 
Uh, our Texas Tech system uh, consists of uh, really two separate medical schools. Uh, we're one, uh, along with the University of Texas, one of uh, two out of eight schools in the nation that have more than one medical school. Uh, we serve uh, really uh, all the counties as far as medical uh, operations are concerned uh, west of I-35 have some overlap with the uh, University of Texas in, in a few areas. Uh, we also, our undergraduate campuses at Texas Tech and Angelo State have worked closely together. And one of the things that's happened since we've had Angelo State in our system, uh, we were able to use our resources to help them get uh, national security studies that's funded by the Pentagon that I think they would not have gotten. Um, our big goal is closing the gaps. And we're trying to get more students in uh, we just got recognized for being one of four in the nation that's done the best job of graduating uh, more minority students. And so we're very proud of that. And uh, I, I'm just saying, closing out, uh, appreciate being here with the other chancellors. Uh, I can tell you they all do a great job. Uh, we've all tried to do more with less uh, than anyone can imagine. And to the Texas Tribune, I always read you, and I, uh, I think you do an excellent job. And the other thing, I polled the other chancellors, and, you know, we will not be offended next year if you have this during the week. Uh, the uh, uh, Saturday, uh, we, we really enjoy being with you, but I'm just during football season, it's a good thing that we had open dates. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Chancellor Sharp's leaving at 3.30 because he's got an emergency that starts at 6 o'clock at College Station. <laughs> Glad to be here. Thank you. And Chancellor McCall, of course, in your system, it can be difficult uh, to know which institutions are in the system because they have so many different names. Well, that's true. We're the oldest system, founded in 1911, based in Austin, Texas, 79,000 students, 15,000 faculty and staff, eight institutions, 12 campuses, Texas State, Sam Houston, Lamar University, uh, Sol Ross State University, Lamar State College Orange, Lamar State College Port Arthur, and Lamar Institute of Technology. We're spread out over a good portion of the state, growing at a fast clip. If you've seen one university system, you've seen one university system, because we're all so very, very different. Uh, Chancellor Sharp, you have been taking on the uh, notion of system identity since you started as chancellor last year, mm -hmm. uh, rebranding a lot of the institutions. Uh, why is that important? What, what is the Texas A&M brand? Okay. Well, Chancellor Sharp is leaving at 3.30 on account of I got a guy going to give me a big check on Caulfield right before this game starts. If there is somebody here that has a check bigger than a million dollars, I will stay here. <laughs> but otherwise, I'm leaving at 3.30. Uh, the Texas A&M University system is composed of 11 academic uh, universities. Uh, we also have uh, branch campuses attached to the flagship university, that being uh, the Maritime Academy in, in Galveston, Texas A&M Galveston, the Engineering School in, uh, in Cutter. Uh, we also have seven state agencies, and those state agencies are the A&M Extension Service, the uh, A&M Engineering Extension Service, experiment stations, sometimes called uh, the Forest Service, and all of those are, are in addition to a health science center. And the health science center is the most... Uh, diverse, I guess, in the state of Texas in that it has a medical school, a school of rural public health, a school of pharmacy, a school of nursing, uh, and a medical school. We, 
we do those very differently than other folks do. We put our students in hospitals that are already built. Um, but what happens in our system is our Dean of Agriculture, for instance, is also the Vice Chancellor for Agriculture. So if we have something that the federal government needs done and it doesn't want to go through sometimes a slow process within a university, we do it at the system. Uh, the same with the Dean of Engineering, who is also the Vice Chancellor for Engineering and, and also the Dean of Engineering at the, at the flagship. A good example uh, is the BARTA contract or the uh, contract that we just won from the federal government having to do with vaccines uh, would never have made it had it gone through a university. It had to be in a system, had to be fast-moving decisions, had to be made uh, pretty fast and things like that. And so uh, we're moving our medical part back into the university for, for some what we think are very good reasons. And so it's not like we just have to have uh, folks in the system. We, we put them where we think they do the most good, but it is a, it's an interesting and very diverse part of what being a land-grant uh, system and a land-grant university is about. Chancellor Couture, could you tell us a well, little thank bit? thank you, Reeve. Uh, um, I'm Renu Couture, and uh, Chancellor of University of uh, Houston System. Uh, in our system, we have 67,000 students. There are four independent universities and five other teaching locations. One of the distinct features, um, I'll first talk operationally, and then I'll come to the, 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 the strategic differentiation, and that is that for the University of Houston system, there is no system office. There is no separate chancellor. There are no vice chancellors, so I wear two hats, chancellor and also the president of the University of Houston. You can see a women can do anything. You know, so I can do double duty here. And in terms of um, uh, some of the very distinct advantages uh, for the university, our um, four universities, University of Houston, Victoria, uh, it has qualified for it, has not received yet federal designation, but once it does, which will come this year, we will be the only system of higher education in the United States of America with a Hispanic-serving designation. There are 53 systems of higher education in America and all our institutions would have Hispanic serving institution designation as well as Asian American serving institution designation. Uh, in our, our system, it's great differentiation in terms of mission. However, uh, Houston, what differentiates us as a Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States, the energy capital of the world, the Texas Medical Center, the largest medical center in the world. There's a NASA and there's a port, so there's a huge economy. We know 31% of uh, Texas's economy is in Houston, and uh, two of our institutions are located right in the heart of Houston. UH Victoria is uh, farthest away. Nonetheless, they also serve uh, the greater Houston region in a very important way. Uh, they are the destination university in the system and provided very important uh, option and choice. Uh, Together, uh, for, the, for the University of Houston system, student success is not only our number one priority, it is our no-excuse priority. So at this point in time, with the University of Houston main campus classifying as seventh-ranked in the nation for graduating students with the least amount of debt at the time of graduation, I can tell you that within the system, we have a Carnegie-designated Tier 1 university, a university that provides very affordable education and a university that is Hispanic-serving as well as Asian-American-serving institution. 
UH Downtown is also a minority-serving institution, so we take a lot of pride in our mission and success of our students. Chancellor Jackson? No, no other state could have this gathering on a, on a platform because no, no other state is organized this way. Texas has six systems and four independent universities because the needs of the state are so diverse and complex. The Dallas-Fort Worth area is 34% of the state's population and job growth, and our system, the University of North Texas system, is the youngest in the state, but it exists because of the growth and the needs of Dallas-Fort Worth. So we have the state's fourth largest campus in Denton, the University of North Texas, with over 35,000 students. We have a brand new campus on 265 acres in southern Dallas County where there is no four-year public university, the University of North Texas at Dallas, and a rapidly growing medical school in Fort Worth with five different colleges, including now pharmacy. We've started a law school because Dallas-Fort Worth was, until John Sharp's recent press conference announcement, uh, the largest metropolitan area in the nation without a public law school making legal ed education accessible uh, to a diverse population. We're proud of the growth of our campuses. They do reflect the growth in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Two of our campuses are research-focused, but also very, very undergraduate-focused, and we think we've added more degrees in the last decade uh, than any other because of, again, our enrollment growth and the growth of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Well, and I don't know if any of you noticed, uh, I'm going to direct this at Chancellor Hance, but anyone can feel free to jump in. Four of the six chancellors are politicians, or have a long history in politics. Chancellor Couture came up through a, a very storied career in academia. Chancellor Sigueroa is a surgeon, noted a medical doctor. But the other four of you uh, came up through the world of politics. Why are so many of our uh, chancellors of our university systems politicians? Well, I think, first of all, you got a, your wordage there probably needs corrected. <laughs> There's four statesmen uh, rather than politicians <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that we're ready at, uh, at, you know, I just want to clarify that. Uh, I, I think the other three agree with me. Uh, you know, you understand the legislative process. Now, I was a professor uh, back in the 70s. And so uh, I'd been involved in academia before I came back as chancellor. But to uh, understand the legislative process as a chancellor, I think, uh, certainly uh, gives you an insight on what's happening uh, on day-to-day uh, uh, -day legislation and also what you need to be doing to comply with the wishes of the uh, governor, lieutenant governor, speaker, and all the members of the legislature. And uh, there are other schools doing this. Uh, my friend Hank Brown served as president of the Colorado, uh, University of Colorado system. Uh, uh, Senator Bourne uh, is uh, president at uh, OU. So we're not unique in that regard, but uh, we do have a, a lot that, that have that background. Chancellor McCall, you want to add Well, something? there are a lot of complementary aspects to both jobs. I now go to the office every day and try to stamp out ignorance and in my previous job, some would say I was a party to it. Um, but there is a lot of advantage in knowing these things. And systems will cycle in and out of needing or wanting uh, someone in politics. Uh, Bill Hobby was chancellor of the University of Houston system. And Renu Couture holds her own, thank you very much, very well in the halls of the Capitol. And no one is better than Francisco Cigueroa in the state Capitol. My goal as chancellor, at the end of my term, years and years and years from now, is when the board decides <laughs> to get a new chancellor, they may not even think about having a politician. 
Chancellor Scheib, did you have something you wanted to add? Well, I would just say if uh, being a politician is awful poor training for being a chancellor, I can assure you all six of these are politicians. Uh, I thought I knew something about politics until I got in the university too. Uh, I, that, was, that was kindergarten. This is really serious stuff. But I think one of the reasons is because um, fundraising is a big part of it. I mean, let's face it, and whether that has to do with the legislature or whether it has to do with the guy meeting in Kyle Field, whatever, all of us have to be a part of that, and politicians seem to have to do that uh, quite a bit, and it, it's part of the fit, I think. But the well, politics in the university is way, way different from what we're used to. Well, and Chancellor Jackson, speaking of knowledge of the legislative process and uh, funding and fundraising, when the legislative session comes up next year, and you guys all go to the legislature and are looking for, I, I imagine, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but increased funding, if not at least steady funding. Do you go as a unified group, or do you have to sort of every chancellor for him or herself? Uh, you mean the, what's sometimes called the crabs in the bucket uh, <laughs> approach to teamwork, uh, where you simply try to pull everyone else back to make sure that no one gets ahead? Uh, that, that, we have been accused of that. I want to go back and answer your, your prior question, though, about why there are people with a public background. Uh, you, you know, if it was so successful, some might ask, uh, gentlemen, why we four statesmen have presided over a decade in which state support on a per-student basis has steadily declined. Uh, they might think that our boards were looking in the wrong direction. But the fact is that managing large university enterprises it has gone through an evolution just like hospitals, which all used to be headed by medical doctors and there weren't professional hospital administrators. Law firms, large law firms, didn't used to have managers. The partners themselves ran all the business side. But uh, I spend my time a little differently than some. It's a, there is a lot of back office, and these are increasingly the areas the state is asking us about. How many FTEs do you have devoted to running your IT systems? Do you have three purchasing directors, uh, three payroll systems, uh, why aren't more of your computer operations shared? These aren't specialties of any academic discipline. They're management. And so if you have that approach and that background, uh, in addition to the legislative background, I think it fits more into the job of what we do. Now, Renew's uh, situation is a little different in actually running a campus and a system, but the system-level responsibilities are largely support services, legal, audit, construction, budgeting, IT, payroll, purchasing, and I think uh, our backgrounds reflect more the nature of that job. So what was your, your other question? Do you guys, when, do you oh, go to the legislature as a, as a group or as a, uh, individual systems? We cooperate with the coordinating board on a lot of issues, and then every two years we cooperate and coordinate with the legislature. Uh, there are issues such as the formula, uh, which provides most of the operating money that flows to our public universities and medical schools. And I've had leaders come from other states into our system who hear about Texas politics and they assume that it must be highly political and chaotic. And I don't know if you've had the same ex experience, but they are impressed with the Texas operating formulas. The fact that most of the regular biennial support is driven to our university budgets through a 17-variable matrix that actually calculates, not perfectly, but somewhat closely, the difference in cost between an upper division engineering course and a freshman English course, and flows the money, and it, it doesn't take a vote of a committee to do it. The formula is in place. A lot of states don't have that. 
A lot of states don't have anything like the tuition revenue bond process where every five, six, it's now been seven years, the state looks at facilities. Some states literally don't do anything for college campus facilities unless there is some sort of a political tug-of-war and, and a governor candidate promises it or a bond election is passed. Our legislature and, and state officials have done it fairly regularly. So we, we cooperate on those things for sure every time they're under discussion. When you mentioned the formulas, obviously, as Chancellor Sharp mentioned, uh, this talk of having institutions like we haven't seen before, which are combined research universities and uh, medical institutions. The UT Austin is trying to build a medical school. You are considering combining your health institution. Uh, maybe uh, Chancellor Couture as a system without a medical institution. How concerned are you that this could throw the formulas out of whack? And how do you make I'm that fair? by your previous question also. Okay. And I'd, I'd like to, to answer a little bit of that because uh, you asked the four uh, of my great colleagues here but did not ask the two of us. So I think that's unfair. So let me just answer that. <laughs> because, um, you know, leadership in higher education really is about connecting public and private expectations to the productivity of the talent. And leading toward a common mission, and that is we know what that is in terms of what our product is. So it's not really so much about what particular skill set you bring to the table as much as it is what kind of team you develop, and can you give a vision? Can you invoke passion behind that vision? And can you really lead your group to a place where they didn't think possible before? So I think you could bring whatever skill sets and you have to add then the remaining skill sets that you need. And I consider my four great uh, politician colleagues also part of my team because I, I, I have great admiration for them. I call them and I ask them for, for advice. And uh, so now uh, coming to your question about um, not having a medical school. Well, you know, you can look, uh, see glass as a half full or you can see glass as a half empty. You know, um, people say that um, two things can bring you down, you know, uh, jocks and docks, you know. So we have jocks, we have athletic group, we do not have a medical, uh, uh, you know, institution to run. But we have three great medical schools in, in our proximity. We have Baylor College of Medicine, we have UTMB, we have UT Health Sciences. So the question is what kind of partnership synergies we can build. And we have enormous number of research partnerships together. We have recruited faculty together. We have built programs, academic programs together. We have also developed programs for students together. So for instance, we have program almost, uh, you know, some done already with Baylor College of Medicine to direct admission out of high school so that they can directly go to the medical school. We program in terms of nursing and public health with UTMB, UT Health Sciences for students because we can put system or an institution or a chancellor at the center of all of this discussion. We have to put a student at the center of it and see what is it that's in the best interest of the student. And if we stick to that, I think all of these other things become you know, quite trivial. Uh, and moving over to Chancellor Sigurella, who uh, maybe you could also talk about uh, you know, why you think that UT Austin uh, should have a medical school as part of it as opposed to uh, part of its system. And then I have another question for you after that. Even this team is a 
<laughs> Perfect. Um, I would say that um, you know, for for almost a decade, uh, our board of regents uh, has been determining you know what are you know the synergi- synergistic opportunities to be able to actually establish a school of medicine uh, within the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, we strongly feel, uh, for a variety of reasons, that this could really benefit first uh, the health you know, of many citizens in Central Texas. Uh, so always health comes first. Uh, but when you take a look at what could position uh, the University of Texas at Austin as really one of the very top, if not the top, uh, public university in, in America, uh, what it's lacking, and I think John Sharp is also looking at this as well, is how can a medical school enhance the educational opportunities and the biomedical research of a flagship campus. Uh, We feel that those opportunities are immense, and in fact, perhaps immeasurable. Uh, First of all, uh, to be able to actually uh, connect the biosciences uh, with the physical sciences. It is my strong opinion that the greatest innovation, the greatest discoveries that are going to benefit uh, mankind are going to be in that interface between the biosciences and the physical sciences. So imagine being able to bring in a school of medicine with faculty interacting with uh, our engineers in in a terrific College of Engineering in America here at UT Austin. Uh, Imagine being able to actually bring our our physicians and scientists to be able to work uh, with, whether it be the law school or whether it be the School of Natural Sciences. There are so many many opportunities of collaboration that the greatest discoveries in the future are going to require team science and a team effort. And the way that you can really catalyze that is by actually establishing a school of medicine within a flagship such as University of Texas at Austin. Not to mention uh, how those discoveries can then more quickly uh, be translated through commercialization to the benefit uh, of mankind. So we see so many synergies uh, that, that I think it's worth every effort uh, to continue to move the ball in that direction. Chancellor Sharp, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, let me, I'd like to say, you know, and I'm proud to be humble, but I would like to point out that A&M is the number one research university in the state of Texas. But, <laughs> but I, let me tell you what I think we all can agree on. We, we would like to see formula funding restored to previous levels. That's one thing we all agree on. We have differences in some other things we may spar on, we'll argue about and try to do the right right thing and take, may end up taking our individual things to the legislature. But here's what we need to realize. The landscape for universities has changed in that granite building over there. I mean, there's no Frank Irwins around anymore. There were, the funding is unquestioned and things like that. And we've got to go to the next session of the legislature, look at the freshman class, respect what the voters have said, whether you agree with it or not, and, and go to the next session of the legislature and say, look, we are the most efficient place you can possibly invest your money. Now, what I think the folks on the uh, Seven Solutions folks did wrong is they tried to attack the reason that flagships, the reason that all these universities are there, and that is research and, and education. Instead of trying to find money in all the stuff that supports research and education, 
and saving that money and putting it in what really makes a great university and a great university system, and that is research and education. And that's what we're trying to do. We, quite frankly, view the recession as our friend almost because we, for instance, go in and we privatized our food service over great angst. We privatized our building maintenance and all that. But that produced $260 million and $45 million cash. Of that, we're putting back into a $100 million research fund to steal, uh, to recruit people from <laughs> California, Michigan, and places like that that are going to be great researchers and to pay their $300,000 salaries when they come. And so all of that is going back in there. And what we have to show those folks in the legislature is that we get it because when I was controller, when I was the legislature, um, I'm telling you, a, a big part of the legislature thought well, we're the most arrogant people on the planet. And you can't be the most arrogant people on the planet anymore, especially in a recession or depression or whatever you call this thing. You've got to recognize that. And all of a sudden, Bubba out there is thinking about outputs. We're thinking about inputs when we go to the coordinating board or when we go to U.S. News and World Report you know, what our faculty-student ratio is. What Bubba wants to know is, how many of these kids get jobs? What do they get paid? Uh, are you producing young men and women that get hired? Uh, are you producing life-changing research and things like that? And, and, and if we change the attitude or the perception of universities toward that, then we're going to be in great shape, and the public is going to see it, and they're going to start funding it again. Well, and, uh, the seven solutions, for those of you who don't know, were the set of controversial higher education reforms. I'm sure some people have already tweeted about that. But, um, you know, a lot of it was focused on accountability and efficiency. And you guys, a lot of you have implemented your own approaches to accountability and efficiency uh, at your universities. Uh, you know, one thing, Seguro, Chancellor Seguro, I wanted to ask you about is, uh, I don't know if you read The Statesman, but there was this story about uh, salaries at the UT system being on the rise at the same time that we're trying to uh, sort of do more with less on the university level. Is there a sort of do as I say, not as I do attitude in the systems? And uh, what should resources be put more towards universities rather than the system offices? Well, that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, if you take a look in 2009 uh, at UT system administration, there were 820 FTEs. And if you take a look at it now, there are about 620 FTEs. So we've cut FTEs by nearly 25%. Uh, what we've done is we've also basically added significant new roles and responsibilities among you know, current executive officers. And with that, did come some increases in compensation uh, to address that. But when you also take a look at you know, what all of us are doing is we are strategically reinvesting in areas that can basically enhance revenue uh, for the benefit of all our campuses. Uh, if we grow in areas such as surge services, such that we can basically take on more responsibilities and save dollars on our campuses, uh, essentially at the end of the day, uh, the strategic investments being made, the areas of growth in regards to information technology, in regards to uh, blended and online learning, in regards to shared services, in regards to cybersecurity, in regards to the fact that the next decade is not going to be about so much bricks and mortar, but it's about do we have adequate you know, high-performance computing power. These are very complicated issues that one needs to address. And at the end of the day, 
uh, we are going to be enhancing excellence across the UT system. If you just take, for example, just over the past, just yesterday, MD Anderson, despite that these areas are investing strategically in several moonshots to try to significantly uh, diminish the morbidity and mortality of cancer. That has required some significant reorganization at MD Anderson, uh, including reductions in force, but at the same time, you know, very strategic investments uh, to eradicate and make cancer history. If you take a look at, uh, again, uh, the, the incentives that we're providing, uh, that's resulted in two $10,000 degrees already, uh, both at Arlington and at Permian Basin. If you take a look at an investment made in the Institution of Transformational Learning, uh, which, of course, we did establish that new office at UT System. Imagine if we can bring the very best faculty, whether it's from UT System or whether it's you know, from the best universities in America, uh, to our campuses along the border. Imagine how that can enhance success. So these are you know, very strategic management decisions with the one focus of enhancing excellence at our student level and our faculty levels. And the... Uh, are these uh, enhancements that could not be made without a uh, system office, or could they be made at the university level? I, I think in order to be able to, to, to really identify shared services and really utilize the purchasing power that a system can do, uh, that can't really be done at a campus level because you can never really get the best pricing from one campus as compared to 15 campuses working together. Well, and you mentioned $10,000 degrees. I believe... Uh, not every system has a $10,000 degree in it yet, but there are a number that do. Uh, I think uh, Chancellor Hans, I don't. the Texas Tech University system has not yet come out with a $10,000 degree. Might we see one in the future, and do you think you'll be able to meet the governor's call last night for a sort of locked-in tuition for four years for students? Well, the first question, uh, we will roll out uh, our $10,000 degree proposal uh, in San Angelo in the first week of October. Uh, it's the only one that will allow four years at Angelo State. And one of the things, and, and I was talking about it with some of the other chancellors earlier, uh, and I, uh, the public needs to understand this, a $10,000 degree is not going to be the same as a college experience. Uh, I learned as much in student government and in other organizations as I did in the classroom. And I think that, that all of us, I mean, that's something that we need to keep in mind. We want to keep that available. But if a student uh, just cannot do that and they don't have the money, then we want them to have this other uh, avenue that would be available. And so we're, we're doing that. Uh, coming back to something that uh, Francisco said and, and that this group, we do work closely together on formula funding, and we'll have a few, you know, internal things that we'll work on. But... Uh, We've got two sources for money. We've got the state. We've got the student. And then the third thing, you can make cuts. Uh, this session, uh, this biennium, uh, Texas Tech system will have $67 million less. We'll have 1,000 more students. So, I mean, we could see it coming, and we've had to make changes. And we used to have 19 students for each faculty member. Now we've got 24 and that hurts us in the ratings. So we dropped a little, and I think uh, all dropped a little, except maybe Houston, uh, coming in the, the ones that were rated in the top 200. And, that, uh, and that's, that's one of the problems that, that we have to address. And that uh, 
you know, uh, we're not complaining. Uh, the universities have not whined as much as some other groups maybe. But we produce people that produce jobs. Higher education does more to help the state of Texas than any other uh, factor in any other area in, in state government. So I, th I think that all are doing a good job and that, that we've made substantial cuts. And uh, like uh, uh, Chancellor Sharp said, we, we'd like to get back to formula funding. And that's the goal that's been the goal of this group. And we do meet uh, fairly regularly. That's been our goal for the last uh, uh, several years. Well, yeah, you mentioned Houston getting into the uh, U.S. News and World Report rankings for the first time, I believe. How important are the U.S. News and World Report rankings? They seem to be more and more controversial by the year. Let me just uh, yeah. add to what Chancellor Hans said about $10,000 degrees, because you may find the statistics interesting. UH system does have a degree, comes out of Clear Lake. But I went one step further and I asked the question, how many of the students who graduated last year, what percentage of them graduated with having paid $10,000 or less out of pocket, which includes loans, of course. And you know what, for U of H, it was 26% of the students. That is based on the, the, all the grants and everything else they got. So it is not that, that we have a published degree of 10,000. I think that's important too. But nonetheless, I mean, think of the reality. 42% of the students from UH downtown paid less than $10,000 uh, cost you know, for their four-year degree. Okay, coming back to the rankings, of course. Um, you know, I, I'm a... <laughs> I'm a political scientist uh, and uh, studied in, uh, in very quanti quantifying you know, discipline in terms of you know, statistical area. That, that was my, my sub-discipline. So I understand the, the, the rankings. I understand all kinds of regressions, of factor analysis you can use in them. But here is an interesting thing. There's not a single ranking, whether it's in research or undergraduate program or anything, that is flawless. They do measure something. They don't tell you everything, but they do measure something. The way I have been able to use the rankings uh, on our campus is we use them as operationalization of a goal. The abstract, the goal, the harder it is for people to really grapple with it and see, okay, what is it that you want me to do? So when we, we said, said we, are, we will get ranked by U.S. News and World Report because, yes, University of Houston had not even been ranked, so we said we want to be ranked. We sat down, did the analysis, what are different measures, how much distance we have. And the analysis indicated that the area that is hurting us the most is the college completion rate, graduation rate. So we set the goal. The graduation rate needs to go up six percentage point if we want to make that 200 list. I won't have any complaint with the faculty. I have no arguments with the faculty because they say we want to be in that particular ranking. Well, we, have, we know we have to move six percentage point. And I can tell you probably for all other rankings in the same way, how it has helped us to focus, like a razor-sharp focus, on what is it that we need to do to get the campus together. And that is something that does make sense. If it didn't make sense, I would probably say, well, that's not something where we want to do. I think college completion or the student success, it helps us in many, many different ways. So in that sense, I'm a fan of, of, of rankings because it helps me set a direction, and just keep everybody in that direction. Well, and I mentioned um, a couple of questions ago the uh, four-year tuition freeze that the governor has been calling for. 
Uh, anyone out there, do you think this is uh, doable? Well, I think UT Dallas does it. I think what, what the governor is alluding to is a four-year fixed tuition yeah. where you know, if you matriculate as a freshman, you're going to pay the same tuition and fees for four years. Uh, that has worked you know, very well at UT Dallas. Uh, UT El Paso also has that option. Interestingly, in UT El Paso, where many, many students are you know, working two jobs at the same time, where you know, their four-year graduation rate uh, is, is below 20%, uh, because, not because they're not doing a great job, it's just 80% of the students are having to do two or three jobs at the same time, and so they're, they're, their six-year graduation rate is significantly higher. For those students, more students at UTEP are actually opting for, or, or are not kind of gravitating toward a four-year fixed uh, tuition. It's just the student demographics are different. For UT Dallas, it's worked extremely well. I think one has to be careful uh, to make sure that one size doesn't fit all. I do believe that a four-year fixed tuition ought to be an option for all our campuses. Uh, at the end of the day, I think the students need to determine what is their best option for themselves and for the families. So I, I think it's a great idea. It just need, There needs to be flexibility to address student needs. Well, and before we turn this over to audience q and I was just wondering if we could uh, go down the line. Obviously, you have uh, the, each system has, is sort of a different geographic location. Some are spread out more than others. But I was just wondering, maybe we could start with Chancellor Sharp and work our way that way and back around. Uh, is there an institution in the state that if you had your druthers, you would add to the Texas A&M system that's currently not a part of it? Yeah. Uh, could you, but I which have one? resistance. <laughs> uh, that I would add? You mean yeah. like from these guys? Or, or the four independent? Well, we're reasonably happy right now. I mean, we have a new law school that we're getting accredited right now. We, at the same time we did that, we moved our medical school out of the system into, into the university, um, which is pretty much what the University of Texas is doing with their medical school here. Um, if I had one other, one, one thing that I'd like to do, and that is uh, I would like to expand the extension service. The extension service, uh, we're in every county. We have an office in 250 of 254 counties. And the extension service is basically teachers that teach, that take the research out of Texas A&M system and take it into agriculture. In other words, they take corn research or drought research, whatever it is, or animals, whatever it is. And instead of going through Monsanto or going through all of these agriculture companies, it will go straight into uh, the farmers. And so you may have an extension agent that's meeting with 600 farmers uh, in a county telling them how to grow corn. I think there's a different use for that extension service, and it's this. Uh, we also have a lot of research uh, at our place in the medical center, uh, all over the state of Texas, um, that has to do with medicine, particularly in engineering and in our health science centers. And I think there is another use for those offices. And I think that one day, uh, I think that you're going to be in one county and you're going to have someone taking the research from agriculture and there's going to be 600 farmers over there, and you're showing them how the latest and greatest agriculture stuff is. And in the other end of the county, you're going to have someone from that same office 
teaching 600 mothers how to raise their children? What the nutrition are? What are the things that you just are finding out about research that if you don't do it that way, then you'd have to let it go through Pfizer and then to your doctor and through the American Medical Association and stuff like that. And so one of the things that we're looking at uh, with the federal government and with the current administration and others is how do you use that same infrastructure not only to teach folks how to grow healthy crops, healthy animals, but to take the research that's in abundance that takes years to get out into the field and take that straight to uh, mothers and show them how to raise their kids or how to, uh, you know, how to uh, take care of yourself when you're pregnant and, and, and uh, do things for your family that you may not hear about for four years as it goes through the, the medical process, and we want to take that directly to them. All right. Chancellor McCall? Within the past year, a nationally syndicated columnist wrote a story that was picked up in newspapers all over the United States, the headline being, Forget Harvard, Think Lamar. And she made a compelling case as to why parents and students should think about going to Lamar University instead of Harvard. The administration at Lamar University wanted to print bumper stickers and signs to put on the highways that said, Forget Harvard, Think Lamar. And I resisted that because I thought it would make it that much harder to bring Harvard into our system. <laughs> so to answer your question, if I could pick one school in Texas to bring into our system, it would be Baylor. I've talked to Buddy Jones, who's a lobbyist and the chairman of the board of Baylor, about hiring him to get that done. And so far, he hasn't returned the call uh, <laughs> as a follow-up. Chancellor Hitz? We always have uh, great ambitions. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't thought about it at length, but I'd love to have the UT and A&M system under us. <laughs> we'd be willing to do that. Uh, I, th I think it'd be. I think it'd be great. Uh, we, we always look at uh, at options, and uh, so you know uh, that's not uh, number one priority for us. But we'd look. We'll just keep going around. Uh, Reeve, I, I, I've got my plate full. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, really focused on, you know, the framework for advancing excellence across the UT system, focus on establishing a medical school here to be a part of UT Austin, expanding medical education, graduate medical education, and developing South Texas as an educational ecosystem. Uh, I, th I think uh, I'm up 24 hours a day. I'm, I'm pretty busy. Senator Jackson? Well, I wasn't planning to announce it here at the festival, but uh, I'm announcing our intention to acquire Rice University in the, <laughs> in the UNT system. Uh, no, really, I, I gave a talk to 300 of our administrative employees last year. We consolidated purchasing payroll computer operations from our Denton, Fort Worth, Dallas operations. And we talked a lot about metrics and efficiency and cost per student and setting service level agreements and measuring what we do in ways that's never been done before. But I told them, really, the goal for me is to have other universities come and kick the tires and look at our services that we provide to our three campuses and ask if they can buy services on a contract from us. That I think the future in higher education is not going to be mergers for academic change. It's going to be because of the incredible cost of supporting the computer platforms that are actually required for large organizations. For us to upgrade uh, our PeopleSoft finance and student service modules, it's a 10, 15, 20 million dollar decision for each module uh, that has to be spread across our system. And we can't keep doing that uh, inevitably. So 
lady and gentlemen, when y'all are ready, just come and see us for a bid. Uh, we're going to try to have services that make it value added. I mean, we think we have a very good legal staff, audit staff, and so forth, but in this area, this is going to become, as it is for many organizations, really critical uh, that, that you don't spend money, as Chancellor Sharp was saying, on the back office that ought to be in the classroom and the laboratory. Chancellor Katora, could you wrap us up? Sure. Um, it's not really about uh, systems or institutions. It should not be about institutions. We should be thinking is any region's needs being met? And then if it takes one of us, two of us, three of us, it takes online, it takes whatever mechanism it takes to reach out to serve that student, to keep Texas globally competitive, that's our obligation. So I think the, the rephrasing is, what are the pockets within the state that are underserved right now? And if there are any pockets that are underserved, then it becomes part of all six of us to see what was the best way to go and serve that region? So I'll again go back and put the student at the center of this discussion. All right, well, thank you very much to all six of you. And now we'll take some questions if you line up at the mic. I'm going to ask Chancellor Sharp to leave. If you need to get out by 3.30, you should probably get going. You can stay. He's going to stick around. He's hoping for bigger checks. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the big check is coming right here. Uh, hello, my name is Tyler Murray. I'm a third-year medical student at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And my question is for all of the chancellors, but particularly for Chancellor Sigueroa, because his system is currently planning to uh, add two new medical schools. And one of the things we hear often in the medical education world is that what we need in Texas is not necessarily more medical schools, because we don't have enough graduate medical education or residency slots for the medical students we have graduating now. And a lot of medical students are forced to go to other states and do their residencies. And because a residency is essentially the best predictor of where a student will ultimately practice medicine, what we're essentially doing now is subsidizing medical education for other, or, or subsidizing medical education for other states. And I would like to know how Chancellor Sigueroa responds to the charge that that money would better serve the health care needs of Texans and the state of Texas if it was put into graduate medical education instead of a medical school. I think you have to do, you, you have to do this through a dual approach, uh, both expanding uh, our medical education students uh, within the state of Texas and at the same time expanding the number of graduate medical residency slots exceeding 10% of the number of graduates per medical school. So in the legislature, uh, there is that... Uh, opportunity to try to actually have 10% more slots in the total number of medical students graduating in the state of Texas. Uh, the second aspect is uh, let's not forget that what the, the, the discussion and the excitement of establishing a medical school in Austin as well as South Texas is that the current hospitals within these communities want to be a part of that. So here in Austin, uh, there, have been, there is a commitment of actually uh, increasing the number of residency slots from what was originally about 125 up to 350. And those residency slots are being completely paid for by the hospitals here in Austin, specifically Seton. And uh, prior to these discussions, that was not occurring. And in fact, that's at no cost to the state and it's no cost to the federal government. You know, the hospitals are paying for these residency slots. In addition, as we've actually expanded uh, the Regional Academic Health Center and have made a commitment to graduate medical students in South Texas by the year 2018, the hospitals of Lower Grande Valley have come together to say that they have a commitment, a verbal commitment right now, 
uh, basically funding 150 new residency slots. So it's a dual approach. Thank you. I think Chancellor Sharp wanted to answer that also. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with that. One, one of the things that we're doing a very good job of in Texas is educating doctors for all the surrounding states. Um, because we don't have enough residency slots, and because we don't fund enough residency slots, a doctor will move to uh, Iowa, uh, take a residency slot there. Sixty percent of them are going to stay in Iowa, wherever their residency is. They marry someone, whatever, whatever happens, and they, and they don't come back. And so it is a poor way to conduct business. And, and a great investment by the legislature would be to increase that. Now, our the way we do doctors is very different from. I guess everybody else in the nation. What, we don't have a lot of big buildings. Uh, we go, we put our doctors in Scott and White, uh, Round Rock with St. David's, or St. Joseph's in Bryan, or Baylor uh, in Dallas. And those doctors are taught by the doctors within the hospital that we choose. We choose the faculty within that doctor. We don't pay them. We pay them very little. And it's amazing how willing they are uh, to do that. The result of that is, is that we produce graduates in the, our health science center uh, for $97,000. We'll produce a graduate. The average is $278,000. And our doctors score, uh, scored in the last three years the highest first-time pass rate of any doctors uh, in the state. And so we're proud of the fact that, number one, we produce 60% of them are family practitioners, but they also are very hands-on doctors, educated, very friendly to the taxpayers because of the, because of the way we educate them. But unless we find residency slots, it's what Francisco and you were implying in your question, unless we find them, uh, we're not doing ourselves any favor and doing a very great job of, of providing doctors uh, to other states. And the, the single best investment I think the legislature could make would be to create more of those residency slots. Uh, well, you have to head out. I, I would agree. Uh, we, we've got to put more uh, money in residencies. And one of the things that Francisco pointed out, we've also got to do it in a way that it encourages hospitals to help fund those. Hi, my name is Torsten Kanaba. I'm a student here at UT Austin. My question is primarily for Chancellor Sigueroa, but... Um, I was wondering what all of your thoughts were on the Fisher case and, oh, what your thoughts were on the Fisher case and what you feel your thoughts are on using race as part of a holistic admissions process to increase diversity. Well, I'm, you know, basically on that front, um, I've always been a believer that one has to take a look at uh, admissions of students in a very holistic way. And I think that the way UT Austin right now is admitting students is, is very specifically tailored in that holistic way. And so, uh, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how the Supreme Court, you know, basically uh, deliberates on the Fisher case. Um, in regards to um, utilizing um, race or gender in this holistic manner, um, again, you know, from my perspective, if everything was formulaic, I'm not sure you'd have the rich diversity of students uh, in any one of our universities. I'm a perfect example of that. If, for example, when I was being considered for matriculation into medical school, let's just kind of use that as an analogy. 
I can assure you I did not graduate in the top 10% at Yale University. And if I had to actually graduate in the top 10% and not viewed as in a holistic way of overcoming challenges, um, I would have never gotten into medical school. So I think a holistic admissions process is extremely important. I think we probably have time for one more question. Hi, good afternoon. I'm from a very small, very rural town called Terlingua. Um, my graduating class was seven people. It became really apparent in Big Ben High School that cost was not the biggest issue that prevented students from going to school. There were lots of other societal, family, cultural, preparation, expectation issues as well. And I wanted to hear you guys address other outreach efforts that you guys have made, not just the $10,000 degree. And not online courses either. I want real other outreach. Chancellor Hans? Well, when I uh, first got to Texas Tech, we created a, a task force on uh, Hispanic student enrollments and also one on African Americans became very aggressive. We were at uh, uh, barely 3% uh, on African Americans. We're now almost at 6 uh, Hispanic, we were at 12%, and now we're at 18 And I think you have to be aggressive. I go out and speak at uh, various organizations. And the other thing we do when uh, we take uh, students within 100 miles of Lubbock, they're 8th graders, and invite them and their parents to come to the campus and that uh, many of the parents have lived in Lubbock forever, but they've never been to the campus. And we want them to feel comfortable coming to the campus and be encouraged to uh, look and start thinking about uh, college uh, when they're in their 7th and 8th grade. Likewise, we do math and science camps in the summer for high school students. We're in the high schools. In fact, in your area, Sol Ross State University is in the high schools uh, on a regular basis. We're growing our scholarships. We're, tr we're trying to marry the scholarships to the motivated students in the area. And we're open to any suggestions that you have. But uh, of course, our survival depends upon uh, getting those students. Uh, we educate a lot of first-generation college students in our system. And, and uh, the first meeting I had with the presidents, I said, if you admit them, let's get them through the pipeline. Because it's immoral to do otherwise, to have them accumulate the debt and fail. Let's admit them and get them through because a first-generation college graduate will marry, a first gener will marry a college graduate. Their kids will be college graduates. It's transformative to Texas. We take what you're asking very seriously. I think as large as the University of Texas system is, it still is about the personal touch. You know, we have to actually be available and accessible to all students. Um, whether it's the chancellor, whether it's a faculty member, we always have to welcome and, have, and spend time with students. I still have students come to my office all the time to ask questions about medical school or various fields. Uh, I think a strength of all our systems is that we do have campuses across the state, and so outreach efforts can be probably more successful than many other university systems. And so um, my motto has always been, as large as the UT system is, it's still about the personal touch and reaching out to students and their families. Chancellor Victoria, you have something you want to say? Sure. Um, University of Houston is the nation's second most diverse research university, according to U.S. News and World Report rankings that came out last week. We have 25% Hispanics, about 14% uh, African Americans, 
21% Asians, uh, about 9 to 10% international students, and small, you can see less than one-third of uh, white students on campus. The Houston MSA, the population is larger than the population of 25 different states. We do reach out to, to different schools, a lot of programs. We go to churches to recruit. We go to families uh, to recruit. The challenge where, where I'm focused very strongly is getting them into the door is one thing. How do we get them to succeed? How do we get them to complete college? Because we do not do any service to let the students come in and then having them drop out. I visited 32 classes the first week of uh, semester. 9,600 students, any class that was more than 200 students, I went personally there to tell the students how important their success is to me personally. And I asked them, I said, you all have come here. These are freshmen. I said, you all have come here. And you said, I want to go to University of Houston. And I said, tell me, did any of you come here planning that I'm going to drop out? Because if anybody raises hand, I said, then you need to come to my office. Let's have a different conversation. Not a single person raised. So I said, why is it then that only one out of two of you sitting here is going to graduate in six years? So I gave them the seven different things that we found from our survey that can help students stay in college because education is a two-way contract. Institutions need to do what they can. Students also need to do what they can. So we have several programs. I'll just give you one example here. And... Uh, our Mexican-American Studies program, very intensive program to hold hands and make sure the student graduate. Their graduation rate is twice as much as the graduation rate for the entire school. We know it is possible. We know the intervention strategies that are required for different sectors can be different because we come from different cultural backgrounds. I mean, I came to this country without knowledge of English, and I have been able to go through, but there were different kinds of things that helped me than what helped some other people. However, when the time comes for, let's say, funding, we simply pretend that it takes just about the same amount of energy and same amount of uh, intervention to make a student succeed. I'm sitting here right now here in Austin, capital, and I would like to urge for us to get with the reality that it we know how to do this. We know how to graduate Hispanic students. We know how to graduate African-American students. We know how to graduate uh, Asian-American students. Different kinds of in, uh, strategies, different kind of labor, different kind of intervention, and we do know that they cost a little bit more. Is there a willingness to actually put some extra money to make sure that institutions uh, such as, let's say, UT El Paso, huge, you know, serving Hispanic population, our UH downtown, we know when we can hold hand a little bit better, we can do a much better job. And just I'll end it with that. Whatever your high school is, I'd like to invite everybody to come next year and just, just visit University of Houston. We love you all. All 54 of us. I think that's all we have time for. Is that okay? I'll pass. All right. Uh, thanks for coming. I'd like to thank Chancellor Cigarella, Chancellor Hans, Chancellor McCall, Chancellor Couture, Chancellor Jackson, Chancellor Sharp, President Obama, who appears to have joined us late in the game here. Uh, Enjoy your next panel.